the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week, I'm going to take you back a couple months to August when I had Dan Vermilia on at the Tattooed Historian Presents at the Gary Owen Irish Pub. This is my live event that I put on there usually once a month. We have a great time doing it. Dan is a good friend of mine, and he wanted to talk about the Battle of Antietam. Dan actually wrote a book for the Emerging Civil War series called That Field of Blood, The Battle of Antietam. And what was very important for Dan was to help point out certain aspects of the battle where maybe we have heard one thing and it was actually another. Uh, We actually entitled the program A New Look at Antietam. So you're going to hear the audio from this live production that we did at the Gary Owen Irish Pub. We had a great turnout. We had a great crowd. We uh, posed some questions from the crowd for Dan It was a really great time. Uh, I hope that some of you who are in the Gettysburg area or on the East Coast, you get to visit one of these when you come to Gettysburg, if you come to Gettysburg, because it is a really great time. We have a great turnout. We have a good networking opportunity for people, and people genuinely love it. We have it there at the Gary Owen. We have a, a full bar service and food service, and it's a great, great time, and it's free and open to the public. So this, again, is... uh audio from one of these, which is my friend Dan Vermilia, talking about the Battle of Antietam, and we plugged his book along the way called That Field of Blood, The Battle of Antietam, and you can find that as part of the Emerging Civil War series. So without further ado, my friends, Dan Vermilia. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Gary Owen Irish Pub. Welcome to another installment of the Tattooed Historian Presents. My name is John Heckman. I am the Tattooed Historian. Thank you all for coming out and surviving the rainstorm that we had on your way in. Uh, I'm lucky enough that the equipment didn't get wet on top of everything else. Uh, But tonight we're going to be uh, talking about the Battle of Antietam which is a very hot topic with uh, a bunch of Civil War uh, people and Civil War nerds like, like me. And uh, I'm glad to have with us this evening Mr. Dan Vermilia, uh, a good friend of mine, and uh, I'm also glad to have his book here because I got a nice copy of this, so thank you for that. Uh, that Field of Blood, The Battle of Antietam, September 17th, 1862, which Dan wrote for the Emerging Civil War series. Uh, and, and we're going to be talking about that tonight. And I also want to give a shout-out to the sponsors of the event, which is the Gaysburg Foundation and Gaysburg National Military Park. So thanks, guys, for, for helping out with that. I know some of them are watching here on the live stream. And, uh, Dan, thanks for coming out and, and being a part of this. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I will say that this is probably the most positive crowd of Vermilia's ever drawn in a pub before, so that's good. <laughs> um, that's one way to put yeah. it. So, yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, I'm a big fan of, of what you do, John, a big oh. fan of uh, how you're bringing history to folks, and uh, this, is really, this is really awesome. I'm glad to be here tonight. So. Well, thank you, and I didn't even pay him to say that, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but but I asked you about what you would like to talk about because you have a plethora of knowledge about a lot of things. I do. Some of them are useful. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so of uh, the different things I thought we might talk about tonight, I thought we'd talk about something that's pretty near and dear to uh, my heart, a subject in history that I'm quite passionate about. Uh, I've worked for the National Park Service for about a decade now, uh, and I started working for the Park Service at Antietam Battlefield in Maryland back in 2010. 
And uh, Antietam has long been a very important uh, part of my own personal story, a part of my interest in history. Um, when I was a kid, I became fascinated in history mostly because of Antietam. Uh, it's uh, something that we'll talk about at some point tonight, so we might as well mention it right up front. My uh, ancestor, my great-great-great-grandfather, was killed at the battle. And learning about that as a kid, hearing my grandfather and my dad tell me stories about him, he was a private in the 106 Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry. Uh, it kind of, I don't know, it made the battle real for me in a way. Uh, it helped to give a face and a name to one of the soldiers who was there. So I was always fascinated by it. My grandfather gave me this old leather-bound green book that was all dusty and beaten up, and it was the history of the 106 Pennsylvania that was printed in the 1880s, and it had a little red X in the roster next to my ancestor's name. So I remember going through that as a kid and just being fascinated by the story. Um, so for about a decade now, I've really studied Antietam professionally, having worked there for the Park Service, and uh, it's really an incredible battle to talk about. Obviously, we're here in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and most of what we talk about here in Gettysburg is 1863, but sometimes we forget that the war did exist outside of three days in July 1863. Uh, I would argue, as would others, that the most important day of the war was September 17, 1862, and I would argue that for several different reasons. Uh, Antietam is perhaps most famous as, of course, the bloodiest single day of the war with over 23,000 casualties in 12 hours. I would argue, though, that while that's its most famous aspect, its greatest significance is that it was the battle that significantly impacted the Emancipation Proclamation and that it's kind of rare in history that you have a singular one-day event like that that so clearly and directly links to the freedom of millions of people. Um, it's, uh, it really was a watershed moment in the Civil War. It changed things entirely. It's the first battlefield that's photographed before the dead were buried. It's the first time that American people are seeing pictures of dead soldiers uh, outside of the battlefield itself. It really was a, a game-changing moment in American history in many different ways. And actually, I uh, thought I'd share a Bruce Catton quote here to help kind of set the tone for what we'll talk about tonight. He wrote this in 18, uh, 1958. Um, what America is and hopes to be dates from the fight along Antietam Creek. The fight cost an enormous number of lives and inflicted pain and disability on many thousands more, but in the infinite economy of the advance of the human race, it may have been worth what it cost. So first of all, no one can really put words together like Bruce Catton, um, but just the idea that yes, this was a absolutely horrific day, it was a horrific event, but in the end, perhaps it may have been worth the cost in terms of what it did for, for the, uh, freedom. So it's really a fascinating topic. Um, not everything we'll talk about will be quite that deep this evening, perhaps. Um, but uh, it's a fascinating topic. So I'm excited to talk about it a little bit, especially because it's a battle that there's a lot that's been written about it. But still, there are some pretty significant prevailing myths about the battle some pretty significant prevailing interpretations that might not really be all that accurate. Uh, and over the last 10, 20 years or so, there's been a lot of new scholarship about Antietam that's kind of helped to change our opinions of certain figures in the battle and the campaign, certain aspects of it. So uh, in the spirit of kind of changing things up and shaking things up a little bit, I thought we'd talk about that stuff a little bit tonight too. So. Well, that's what I'm all about, changing it up and shaking it up a little bit. Uh, how, before we go on, I want to check, how many here know that they have ancestors who were at Antietam? Anybody? Anybody have ancestors? I know I have. Definitely you do. Uh, and that's, that's what gets us involved, like you say, that personal connection to the past, and I think it's very important. Uh, when, when you talk about was the battle uh, a stalemate, uh, a draw, as we would say, was it a federal victory? Yeah. Where, where do your interpretations of that come from? Well, for a very long time, Antietam has been judged this, uh, this stalemate, that essentially both armies duked it out throughout the day on September 17th, and then at the conclusion of the day, nothing had really been determined. It's a stalemate. It's not a victory. It's, it's, it's nothing for the Union Army. Um, I and many others, and I'm going to steal an argument from my good friend John Hoptak here, because I do that a lot. Um, but I and many others advocate that it's a strong, a strong Union victory for many different reasons. Um, at the start of the campaign, 
in early September of 1862, Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, they are on an absolute winning streak. In two months' time, they have taken the war from the seat of Richmond and the Peninsula Campaign, moving it all the way to the doorstep of Washington, D.C. So they have the momentum on their side. Lee is coming north into Maryland, hoping to accomplish a set of goals. Namely, he's really trying to just get a victory over Union forces on Union soil. Even though Maryland is a slave-owning border state, it's still northern soil. So Lee crosses the Potomac with this goal in mind, trying to have a victory over Union forces. And at the end of the day, in the Maryland campaign, Lee does not achieve that goal. On the other side, you have George McClellan, commander of the Union Army of the Potomac, who will talk more about here as we get going. Uh, everybody's favorite Civil War general, right? George McClellan. <laughs> Boo, okay. Wow. Well, all right, tough crowd. <laughs> yeah, it is tough. Um, <laughs> so George McClellan, um, commander of the Union Army of the Potomac at the start of the campaign, has this cobbled together force that we'll talk about more here uh, as we go. Um, it's an army that he builds brand new in the span of just a few days in September of 1862. It's really a unique thing in the history of the Civil War that you have an army built that quickly and really not even that well. Um, and they're moved right out into the field and engaged in major combat right away. And McClellan had the goals of essentially preventing Lee from accomplishing what he was going to accomplish and keep him away from the Capitol. So if we're going to simply tally up the scoreboard, Lee and the Confederates do not achieve their goals. McClellan does achieve his strategic goals for the campaign. But on a more basic note, and this is where I'm stealing an argument from uh, my good buddy, John Hoptak, who wrote the foreword for my book, and he makes this argument in the foreword. Uh, you know, essentially, I will describe a campaign for you, and you tell me if it's Antietam or Gettysburg. Confederate Army is coming off of a major victory. They move north into Union territory, looking for a victory over Union forces on Union soil that could potentially win the war. Union forces in the midst of commander disarray and turnover, catch up with them, a major horrific battle is fought. At the conclusion of that battle, both armies are still on the field, and then the next day, one of the armies starts to retreat. Which battle did I just describe? Both. However, one of those battles is described as an outright Union victory. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's ever said that Gettysburg was not a Union victory. And the other battle is always described as a stalemate. Right. Do you think that's historical memory? I do. Yeah? I do. And I think that uh, if it was a different commander other than McClellan at Antietam, mm -hmm. perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, we might view it differently. Um, the Confederates were always better at spinning history during the war. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know about the Lost Cause after the war, but the Lost Cause actually starts during the war itself. Mm -hmm. um, you have Confederates who, after Antietam, are already painting uh, the picture. Lafayette McClaws writes a letter home in early October saying, essentially, you know, we were outnumbered three, four to one, and we did pretty well. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of it is historical memory and, uh, and how things evolve. And even, even some will say that, well, you know, Lee, Lee held his own. He was outnumbered. Yes, he was outnumbered to, uh, to an extent, and he did... He wasn't wiped off the field, but still, um, overall, I, I think you'd have to say say it's a Union victory. Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, that, that is that is an issue that historians have uh, attributed to McClellan. So essentially, um, and this is good, you know, we can, we can jump around and, and, mm -hmm. and get into stuff, because ultimately that's, that's what I'd like to do. Um, right. So when you say go after, go after Lee, um, there's a couple different scenarios in which he could have done that at the battle. There's essentially on September 18th, why didn't the battle continue that day? That's, that's something that a lot of historians say that perhaps limits it from being an outright victory. Well... On the morning of the 18th, McClellan's initial intention was to continue the battle that morning. Uh, he had received some reinforcements during the evening. Uh, one of those reinforcing divisions was about 6,000 men, and they had undertaken a 24-mile night march over two mountains to get there. So some of these reinforcements coming in from McClellan aren't, needless, aren't really what we would describe as battle-ready guys. So I think McClellan's looking around and thinking, eh, 
Maybe I'm going to give it a day and then resume the battle on the 19th. Once Lee retreats, uh, there actually is a battle on the banks of the Potomac River, uh, the Battle of Shepherdstown on the 19th and 20th. And it's not really well known. There's not a lot written about it. Um, there's no National Park Service site there. Uh, so it doesn't really get the attention that the bigger battles get. But there actually is a, a pursuit action on the banks of the Potomac. And the Confederates are able to fend off the, the Union pursuit and get away back into Virginia. So uh, Shepherdstown's a pretty, pretty interesting uh, fight. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's a question for McClellan of he wants to still try to uh, reboot this army that he, he built very quickly. So there is something of a, of a pursuit. But I would also say with the Gettysburg comparison, again, you know, that's the same thing we hear about Meade and Gettysburg, mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't temper the fact that we describe the battle as a Union victory. So I would say, you know, to your point, I think a lot of it is uh, historical memory. Yeah, I was going to say that, that yeah. question has been asked of, yeah. of me and others for years about Gettysburg. Was Meade slow to go after Lee? And, was yeah. all, and it's the same, it goes back to John's point. Yeah. That, you know, it really works in well, and I never considered those options when you line them all up like that. Yeah, if you just compare the two, just take the commanders, take the personalities out of it, they're very similar. Right. So would you say that McClellan gets a bum rap? I do. Um, I definitely do. I think George McClellan was uh, put in a very difficult spot in early September of 1862. Um, he certainly was not a perfect general. He's not a guy I would sit down and, sh and have a beer with. Um, Personality-wise, uh, he leaves a lot to be desired, I think. Um, the way he acted towards Lincoln at various times in the war was not ideal, uh, especially with the Harrison Landing letter, things like that, from the summer of 62. Um, and certainly McClellan's biggest flaw is that he's wholeheartedly against the Emancipation Proclamation. He shares a fundamentally different view of the war than Abraham Lincoln does, which is ultimately why he was uh, relieved of command, one of the reasons. But uh, I, I think McClellan's just a fascinating figure. He really can't win in Civil War history because his two biggest antagonists in the war are the two most beloved figures of the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee. Politically, he runs against Lincoln in 1864, and on the battlefield, he's facing off against Lee. So no matter which side of the Mason-Dixon line you're on, you have cause to dislike him because he is an antagonist for the most beloved figure in the North and the most beloved figure in the South. With Antietam, you have so many new recruits. I know when my ancestor got to Antietam, he'd been in the Army for a month. Yeah. And he probably didn't even fire his weapon more than two or three times. Yeah. Uh, how, does, how does that influence our, our thought process on the, on the battle and when we go down there and we see a place like that? One out of every four... Union soldiers at Antietam were brand new, had never been in combat before. And uh, comparatively for the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, it's almost statistically irrelevant the number of soldiers who had never been in combat before. Uh, about 60% of the Confederate Army had been in three or more major battles or campaigns, and it's about 10% of the Union Army that you can say the same thing for. So uh, experience-wise, there's really no contest between the two armies there. And you said with your ancestor only firing his gun a, a few times. Right. That was actually a common refrain. Um, some of the, uh, Ezra Carmen, I believe it was, in the 13th New Jersey said he encountered other officers in their regiments who said that their guys didn't know how to form a line of battle and things like that. And yeah. um, A lot of these guys were raised in the summer of 62 to re uh, answer the call for a couple hundred thousand new recruits. And they had just gotten to Washington at the end of August, early September, and guess what? If you're a new recruit, that's not a good place to be in 1862 at that time. So, yeah, it's a it's a quick turnaround for a lot of these guys. They are learning as they go, right? Yeah, and and they are as green as you can get, as we say. Yeah, and and uh, just speaking on personal uh, reference here, that uh, the first place that my ancestor went to battle is the Sunken Road at Antietam, mm. uh, striking that. Yeah, and and it's just you have to think about. These are new people going into battle, new recruits, and they're hitting 
entrenched positions. They're hitting people in cornfields. They're yeah. going up against a, a bridge, a, a yeah. south bridge. There has to be so much logistical nightmares going on yeah. on the field because some of these guys don't even know they're left from their right, and they're going yeah. out there and, and trying to figure this out. It's almost like Bull Run all over again. Yeah, for some of the union units there, it really is. Um, and I should pause here to say that none of this is to suggest that the Confederate Army did not have problems. Um, they have problems with equipment. They have problems with nutrition. They have problems with being the numerically smaller force. Like, the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia has a laundry list of issues. Uh, the difference is that those issues are well known uh, for the Confederates, is that uh, it is in their favor that they had these issues and, and still performed despite them. But uh, you, have, you have guys going into battle who don't know what they're doing uh, at Antietam. They're not extremely well trained. Uh, one of the more pivotal moments of the fight happened when uh, A.P. Hill's division came up from the south on the afternoon of the 17th. Well, the part of the Union Army that they're hitting, uh, for those who might need a little background, this is a dramatic moment in the battle. Afternoon of September 17th, the final attack of the Union Army is sweeping up these fields towards Sharpsburg. It looks like they might actually break through the outnumbered Confederate right flank. And the last Confederate division to reach the field is reaching it at exactly the right time, exactly the right place. And oh, by the way, they happened to hit a regiment that had never been in battle before, had only been in the Army a couple weeks, and they were, they were in the middle of a giant cornfield yeah. on a hill. Because, you know, a flat cornfield wouldn't have been difficult enough, a hill, yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to look at these these green recruits in the Union Army at Antietam right. and, and see some of the challenges they're facing. Well, we've already picked on George B. Mack. Yeah. How about we pick on Lee a while? Okay. <laughs> Is that good? Sure. Does he does he get himself caught up in a trap with does that with that river behind him and all that stuff, the Potomac and all that? So that's a really good question. Um, and you could go a couple different ways in how you answer it. I would say ultimately, yes, Lee is fighting a battle with a river a couple miles to his to his, the rear of his position there, um, and it's a risky thing to do. But Lee is a risk-taking commander. I think he realizes that uh, the longer the war goes, with that sense of timing, it's imperative that he try to have a victory at some point uh, over Union forces on on Union soil. So he's willing to take those risks. The whole campaign is a risk. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a risk. Um, I don't think that... I would say that probably on the morning of September 16th, Lee is still thinking there might still be a way for me to go north mm. from here towards Hagerstown. Mm. Uh, it's not till Union forces start crossing over the upper bridge under the northern part of the field that he's pretty well stuck to fighting at Antietam. But even then, if you're going to fight with a river a couple miles behind your position, you're going to want terrain like what he had at Antietam. I mean, the ridges there, the terrain is just incredible. Um, it's, uh, it's an incredible battlefield to study. It's an incredible battlefield to hike because the terrain is so well-preserved. It's so distinct with the hills and the ridge lines. And uh, the way Lee set up outside of town, he had perfect positions for artillery. He had internal lines where he was able to easily shift his men around the field throughout the day. So I would say, yeah, it's, it's a big risk. Um, I don't know if I'd use the word trap, though, but it's definitely a big risk. Right. You talked about how the battlefield looks, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most beautiful battlefields I've ever seen yeah. out there. And how has that changed over the years, and our, our perception of that battlefield has changed? Because I know there was like a trailer that used to be like a double-wide trailer. It used to be right next to the Dunker Church and other yeah. stuff. And it's just been like, wow, that's only been like 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. It's changed dramatically in our lifetime. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you have on, uh, to say about the, the transition of it becoming the shrine that it is today? Well, I like that you used uh, shrine because I think yeah. it is. Um, I think Antietam is the, the best preserved battlefield. Uh, Shiloh is up there certainly as well. Mm -hmm. But um, Antietam is a, a remarkable piece of ground mm -hmm. uh, for the preservation efforts. It was one of that original five, the, the first five you know, Civil okay. War battlefields. Yeah preserved by the War Department in the 1890s. And uh, it's been an evolving philosophy. Initially, they didn't purchase much ground at Antietam. Uh, it was a whole different approach than, than here at Gettysburg. There was no version of the GBMA uh, like right after the battle. Um, but it was maintained as farmland for so many years. Uh, but over the last 30, 40 years, you know, in our lifetimes, the Park Service has acquired huge portions of what the battlefield currently entails. 
And they're still doing that. They're still acquiring important tracts of land all over the place. And it's not just that, but they're making it accessible with trails. Uh, they're doing just remarkable things there. They just did a huge rehabilitation of Burnside Bridge, and they're redoing the walkway down there. The bridge was literally falling apart, and the Park Service was able to, to restore it. And um, they, they do a tremendous job. The, the West Woods at Antietam, where my ancestor was killed 30 years ago, they were replanting all of that to be what it is now. So it's really remarkable. What part of the battlefield would you say is the part where it has like the most mythology involved with it? Would you say it's like Burnside Bridge Ooh. or like where, where, like where we're like, we go there and we're like, well, why couldn't you take this? Or, yeah. you know, because we, we have hindsight and we're like, oh, yeah. yeah, this is pretty easy. Let's do this. And because I think about that at Burnside Bridge, yeah. it's like people always just like, oh, Burnside was an idiot. Yeah. He couldn't get across this bridge. Uh, are there any parts of the battlefield that you think are like that, where it has like the most mythology yeah. about the way we think about the battle? I would say the bridge. Yeah. Um, I would say the bridge. It's a great example. First of all, who here has ever heard that the battle was fought in three phases by a show of hands? Okay. Let the record reflect that a lot of hands went up. Um, <laughs> so the whole idea that the battle was fought in three phases. It's morning phase, cornfield, midday phase, sunken road, afternoon phase at Burnside Bridge. So the afternoon phase at Burnside Bridge, this is a pet peeve of mine. So the fighting starts at 10 a.m. You can't say it's the afternoon if it starts at 10 a.m. Um, so one myth is that the bridge was the afternoon phase of the battle. Um, it's what I would call the southern phase, because it's a whole, basically everything south of where the Boonesboro Turnpike is uh, modern-day Route 34. That's the southern phase. So for one, you know, that it was fought in the afternoon. It really wasn't. Um, another myth with the bridge is that that was the, the focal point of the southern part of the battle, where really that was just a means to a larger end of attacking towards the town and the final attack of the Union Army. And really, what, what you said there with, with uh, our, our perceptions of Burnside and the bridge itself and why did he need to cross it, you know, that... That's another big myth, is, is folks look at it today and they see the slow, meandering Antietam Creek and they think, what's, what's the big deal? Yeah, like, I could get through here. Well, you might be able to wade through, but you're not a Civil War soldier. Uh, you're not commanding thousands of Civil War soldiers. Uh, you're not trying to have to go through there with Confederates up on the hill overlooking you, firing down at you. Um, yeah, there were a couple hundred casualties in the fighting at the bridge. There were thousands more after that in the attack towards town. But uh, the bridge was an essential crossing point. It had to be taken to attack on that end of the field. Lee himself knew that because of the three bridges on the battlefield. There's only one that he defended, and it was that one. So uh, it was an essential crossing point for the Union Army. And, and it took him a couple hours to cross there because it was a difficult job. It was a difficult task. Um, you know, it's a narrow bridge, about 12 feet wide. You try sending the 12,000-man Ninth Corps across a 12-foot-wide bridge, it's going to look like I-95 outside of D.C. at rush hour. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, since your ancestors into West Woods, why don't you touch on West Woods? Because yeah. that's important to you. Yeah, so the West Woods, um, it's not one of the most famous parts of the battlefield. It's the cornfield, the sunken road, the bridge are the, the most famous parts. But the West Woods was really integral to the to the story of the battle itself. Uh, after three, four hours of bloody fighting around the cornfield on the morning of the battle, you had about 8,000 casualties, but you also had Confederates driven back behind this woodlot uh, with Union soldiers having an opportunity to really do some damage to the Confederate flank. And you have 65-year-old uh, Major General Edwin Vose Sumner leading the division of John Sedgwick right into the West Woods trying to kind of sweep Confederates from that part of the field, and he essentially is bringing them into exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. It, that happened multiple times for the Union Army at Antietam. They had some pretty bad luck, and uh, they were also going up, up against Lee on one of his finest days of the war, I would say. But in the West Woods, you have this entire division, 5,000-plus, John Sedgwick's men, all veteran soldiers, all from the peninsula, my ancestor, one of them, and in about 30, 40 minutes, they take over 2,000 casualties. It's one of the more, I, I would say, un, untalked about, unspoken, just great slaughters of the war. Um, it uh, almost parallels the losses of, of Pickett's division in some ways. It's just devastating casualties in such a short time span. 
uh, in the West Woods there. And just the, the, the events that took place, you have Sumner, this Corps commander, riding around trying to rally his troops together. He wrote a letter to his wife several days later saying that in the, the roar of battle, he was screaming so loud that he couldn't talk audibly afterwards. He lost his voice trying to rally his men. Uh, you had Oliver Wendell Holmes in the West Woods. He was wounded there, future Supreme Court Justice. Uh, Edward Revere, we know Paul Revere, uh, who was, uh, of course, from the Revolution. His grandson, Paul Revere, killed here at Gettysburg, while his brother, Edward Revere, was in the same massacre. Um, with some really powerful stories there, and of course, that's where my ancestor was last seen. Uh, essentially, what happened was when this flank attack came up, his regiment tried to turn and, and do a defense against it, and he was last seen fighting along a fence line. And because he shaved off his beard a couple days before the battle, burial parties didn't recognize his remains, so he was buried as an unknown soldier. So the West Woods is an incredibly powerful part of the battlefield, absolutely. And, and like you say, it's a part of the battlefield that sometimes just goes untouched. Mm -hmm. No one, people drive by it. You know, they, they go to Dunker Church and they fly past it and go to the cornfield or whatever yeah. else. Do you think that makes it more of a solemn thing for you personally? I do. To know that when you go there, it's kind of quiet? Yeah, when I go to battlefields, I love, like, I love East Calvary Field because oh, yeah? it's so quiet. Yeah. Um, I love the parts where you, you get a little bit out into the landscape more and uh, you don't necessarily have the tour buses coming by all the time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I love the West Woods. That's, that's the place to be. There's mm -hmm. a great trail that cuts through there. Uh, the only problem is that there's a, a road that cuts right through there as well, Route 65, um, coming through the battlefield. But right. Um, right. probably the coolest monument at Antietam is the 15th Massachusetts Monument, the, the Wounded Lion. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, in the West Woods itself. The 15th Mass took over 300 casualties, about 50% casualties, highest number of casualties for a regiment at the battle. Mm. It's a very poignant, powerful monument there. Mm. And, and we know that elements of the Iron Brigade fought there. What, what became the Iron Brigade, they fought along the Hagerstown Pike right there near West. Yep. West Woods. So that's our connection with uh, the ridge out here on, on the first day. Yep. And, and a lot of the troops that are there will go on to be here, mm -hmm. except for those big nine-month regiments. They, they, they kind of phase out after Chancellorsville. Yeah. Um, we know also that some of the fighting started the day before. Yeah. The skirmishing on the northern end of the... That, that was towards the East Woods, correct? That correct. was some of yeah. the skirmishing? Yeah, Union, Union forces and Confederate forces kind of collided a little bit on the afternoon of the 16th of September. Not enough to really classify it as a two-day battle, but there was some skirmishing, some casualties in the East Woods. And the most significant thing to me about that is because of that, because you have Union forces who've crossed over the creek and they've started skirmishing with some Confederates, because of that, uh, both armies kind of went to bed on the 16th having a pretty clear idea of what was about to happen the next morning. Uh, you read letters from these guys. Uh, there's a letter from, uh, the soldier's name escapes me, but he essentially is saying, you know, thousands of men will have no need for rations by tomorrow night. Uh, Confederate soldier in the West Woods area. Um, very, very close quarters on the night of the 16th for some of these men, uh, very close together. Um, just very, very powerful thinking about that evening. There's a rain that's falling. Um, both armies are going to bed knowing what's about to happen. We touched on that real quickly when we were there for the CWI Summer Conference. Yeah. Because we're like, is this now a two-day battle or not? And yeah. there was this little argument between all of us who were in the group together. We're like, is this going to be, yeah. for us, a two-day battle or, or, or not? And it seems like yeah, it's just the single day is the, again, this is going back to historical memory. The yeah. single day portion of it is what is significant to us. Yeah, I would, I would say it's still a single day battle. Um, you know, there's some skirmishing on the 16th, but... Uh, nothing compared like what was about to happen that next morning. Right. Yeah, certainly right. pales in comparison. Right. What do you think the after the fighting is done and, and the armies have moved on, what do you think the legacy is of that battle for, for those men at that time? Do they, do they see that as one of the uh, most gruesome engagements they've been in, one of the most uh, brutal, in our words? Yeah. Or, or, or how, do they, how do they perceive it afterwards? How do, how do they perceive... McClellan and Lee afterwards. Well, you have a lot of soldiers who are writing, saying things to the effect of, at the end of the war, the, the fighting at Antietam was still the worst I saw. I think there's a quote from Rufus Dawes saying that the piles of dead along the Hagerstown Turnpike were 
uh, far worse than anything he saw at Gettysburg or, or anything mm -hmm. in 64 in the Overland Campaign. Um, so it stayed with it stayed with soldiers, I think, for for the rest of the war, for the rest of their lives, in many many different ways. Um, one one name that always comes to mind for me is Colonel William Christian, who was a brigade commander in the Union First Corps. And on the morning of the 17th, he was supposed to lead his brigade into the cornfield, and he snapped. He fled his brigade. There was some chaos, some disruption. Uh, two days later, he resigned, and that followed him to his grave decades later. Uh, it stayed with him. So I think, um, you know, Antietam was just that one day, but it stayed with folks. As far as how it impacted Lee and McClellan, um, you know, I, th I think really the 17th was one of Lee's finest days of the war. I think it stayed with him uh, in that it, it told him how close he was. He was in Union territory. He had a chance at this battle. You know, he had to try it again nine months later. <laughs> right. Uh, for McClellan, I mean, that's his, that's his, that's the end of his combat career, mm -hmm. um, you know, because he does not launch a full-throated pursuit quick enough for Lincoln's tastes, uh, mm -hmm. because McClellan wants to rest and rebuild this army that he had quickly rebuilt already, um, you know, for him, that's, that's the end of the line, uh, but for McClellan, Antietam always stood out to him as, as the moment that in his mind he had done a great service, and I think he did there, I think he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of as a wild card question. Okay. Uh, McClellan goes to Crimea in the 1850s, and he's over there, and he sees what that is like. He goes overseas as an observer. Do you think that ever plays a part in his leadership, where he's like, oh, I've seen war over there, and that's kind of, that can be really brutal. And do you think that kind of plays, I've always wondered that about McClellan, because he's going over to see European combat. And I've wondered if that kind of influences his leadership style. You know, that's first of all, that's a great question. Um, well, I thank have, you. That's <laughs> I try once in a while to come up with a question. That's I haven't really studied his writings from that era enough to answer that definitively, um, from from when he's over there in Crimea. Right. right. But I would say that McClellan is. I would answer it by saying this: that we often say that McClellan is a commander who's scared to see soldiers killed. I wouldn't use the word scared. I would use the word reluctant to see his soldiers killed. Um, and the incredible thing to me is that we say that like it's a bad thing almost. Mm -hmm. Like that, mm -hmm. well, this guy, he doesn't want to just, you know, lose thousands and thousands and thousands of men. Well, okay, well, there's probably something to be said for that. Um, right. But yeah, I think McClellan, McClellan ultimately never wanted the Civil War to become what it did. He never wanted the war to become this bloody, almost revolutionary conflict that totally and fundamentally changed the United States. Mm -hmm. And the irony is that uh, he's, a, I mean, he's a moderate, really. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a moderate approach. He wants things to go back to where they were. That's why he wants to take Richmond, is, hey, we'll take their capital. It'll end the rebellion. Things will go back to normal. It'll be great. Mm -hmm. And the irony is, is that he's commanding at the battle that does more than any other to transform this into that bloody nation history altering revolutionary struggle. So I would say, you know, I, I can't say definitively, but I would think right. that that stayed right. with him what he saw right. that influenced his view of warfare. Cause you also have to think he's a very young man. He's only in his mid thirties at Antietam. Mm -hmm. I mean, for goodness sakes, he gets into West Point at the age of 15. <laughs> right. So yeah. um, he's a very young man uh, when he's over there observing things in Europe. So. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, we think of McClellan as being this timid person, and we, then on the opposite end of the spectrum is Grant, who's the butcher, yeah. quote-unquote, as they would say, as, even yeah. though Lee's still losing more men than Grant Correct. is and all that. Correct. Uh, so we, it's, it's going back to how we perceive these two people and how yeah. we perceive their actions on the battlefield. It's so important. Yeah. Uh, what, what is your legacy with the, with the battle itself? Other than your ancestor, how do you perceive the legacy of the, of the fight into even the 20th century? Well, I would say, uh, you know, kind of what I, what I mentioned earlier, Antietam was this epochal moment that, that changed things. Um, for those who might not know the, the connection with the proclamation well, uh, Lincoln decided to issue the Emancipation Proclamation in July. And he basically told his cabinet, hey, I'm going to do this, but I will accept your feedback as to how and when. So they advised, you know, let's wait for a victory. It's kind of a, not a good time for us on the battlefield. Uh, a lot of people blame Lincoln for that, that letter he wrote August 22nd. Uh, today's the anniversary of it. Um, saying, you know, if I would, 
Uh, I thought freeing slaves would end the war, I would do it. If I thought not freeing it would end the war, save the Union, I would do it. Well, by that time, he had already decided to do it, so he's just politically posturing. But it really was hanging in the balance. Lincoln told Francis Carpenter later that when Lee crossed the Potomac into Maryland, that was, he told, essentially he made a, a promise that at that point if Lee was repulsed out of the state, that would be the victory for which he had been waiting. So for me, the legacy of the battle really is its connection to, to emancipation. It, it changed things in so many ways. It changed the lives of all the soldiers. It changed the commanders who were there. It changed uh, the country itself in many ways. Photography uh, brought the horrors of war home, but really it's linked to emancipation is, is for me the, the, the aspect of it. There's a quote that I love from a soldier. His name was Julius Rabardi. He was a soldier in the 12th Massachusetts Infantry, a unit that suffered two-thirds casualties in the cornfield. And Julius Rabardi was a French immigrant to the United States. He was born in 1833, and in the cornfield, he was on the eastern edge of it, he was hit in the leg and his leg was broken. So he goes up to a tree in the East Woods and he's crawling, using his elbows to crawl around this tree from side to side because he is caught between the two lines of fire. And if there's any worse place to be in the entirety of the Civil War, within the first hour of the battle at Antietam, in the cornfield, right there, that's an absolute horrible spot to be. And he's crawling around the tree. He survives, he lives to tell the tale, and several decades later, he wrote a, an account of his experience, and in the account, he said, I was exposed to the fire of slavery and freedom, describing the two contending armies firing at him. He said it wasn't the fire of the North and the South, it wasn't the fire of blue and gray, it wasn't the fire of Union Confederates, it was the fire of slavery and freedom, which it quite literally was. So I think for that, for me, that quote right there really captures the legacy of it. Um, and just the, the human toll of it as well. Uh, the, the title of the book, That Field of Blood, comes from a Scottish-born chaplain who was with the 11th Ohio. Um, being from Ohio, I try to use Ohio quotes as much as I can. I couldn't tell by your shirt. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. no one who knows me would be surprised I'm wearing a Cleveland Indian shirt. Um, <laughs> but he said uh, in talking about the toll of the battle that uh, there will be countless uh, homes where there's heartbreak far from that field of blood. That's kind of a paraphrase for part of it there, but um, you know, the, the human suffering of it was uh, what led to that history-altering proclamation that, that was really a defining event in many ways. So, Yeah, before we wrap, let's talk about your book. How long did it take you to do this? Well, it was... Uh, probably about a year, year and a half or so for, for writing, putting it together. Um, it was, uh, first of all, it was a real great uh, honor to be a part of the series. Uh, I don't know if folks are familiar with the Emerging Civil War series, but I'll give it a plug here. It's a, it's a great set of books that serve as introductions to major battles of the war, major stories of the war. Uh, a lot of really good, good people are involved in it, so it was awesome to be involved with this and do the book. Um, and it was cool to be able to, to try to introduce Antietam to new audiences, to uh, try to, it's, a, it's a kind of a summation of the battle in a way. It's not an in-depth thing. If you've been hiking the trails there for 20 years, you're probably not going to find a ton of new stuff in it uh, about the battle. But it was cool to uh, get a chance to write this and uh, talk about my ancestor, talk about the meaning of the battle. It was a really neat opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've worked with uh, Chris Mikowski Civil, uh, mm -hmm. of the Emerging Civil War, and he's a great guy, and I, I do love the series of books because they are an like an introductory, like you said. And, yeah. and some of them give you spots on the battlefield to go to, and they're like, this is how you get there, and it really is helpful for people just getting in the entry level, mm -hmm. juices flowing, basically, the curiosity flowing. I really like the Emerging yeah. Civil War stuff. So shout out to Chris Mikowski uh, for, for, for getting us on board with that. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's uh, that, that Field of Blood, the Battle of Antietam, September 17, 1862, uh, by my good buddy Dan Vermillion. Thank you for coming here tonight Thank and you. being a part of this. And, and if you have any questions, I'm sure Dan will take them. Uh, if not, we're going to uh, uh, go to the bar for a little bit, I guess. So do, do we get tattoos now? Is that how this works? <laughs> you had to throw a tattoo dad joke yeah. in there, didn't you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll get a core badge on you. How about that? I, I have two questions. One, um, 
one was how did, how did people get across the river, the Potomac, I assume is the one you're talking about. You'd say that that was a problem, uh, having the river to his back lead. Mm -hmm. And second, I'm interested in the townspeople and the slaves in Antioch. And what, what this, do you know anything about their experience? So uh, first of all, with the river itself, there was a ford a couple miles to the rear of Lee's right flank. And that's where the, the fighting was uh, for, for Shepherdstown. So there was a fordable spot on the Potomac. Uh, it's still there, um, you know, depending on the height of the water. So there is a ford across the river that they could use. As far as the, uh, the townspeople um, during the battle, um, you know, Antietam did not have a civilian killed during the battle. There is no Antietam uh, Jenny Wade. Um, but the townspeople still suffered significantly. You know, uh, the Muma farm on the battlefield was burned by Confederates. They didn't want it to be used as a safe haven for federal forces. Um, there was another barn, the real barn, was used as a field hospital and caught fire from artillery while there were wounded soldiers inside. So uh, there, was, there was damage from the battle um, because, uh, you know, typical stories of, of farmers applying for, for uh, help from the government the government saying, well, no, the Confederates did this. We're not giving you any money. Um, but there were, there were slaves living on the battlefield as well. Um, Washington County, Maryland, uh, did have some slave population. Maryland overall had about 87,000 slaves when the war started. Uh, Washington County was far fewer than the eastern and southern parts of the state, so it's not nearly as prevalent there, but it, it did exist. Um, the bricks for the Dunker Church were made at one of the battlefield farms, and, and there, were, there were slaves at that farm. So there were some slaves out who lived on the battlefield itself. Um, so it's, uh, you know, Antietam impacted the civilians. It impacted everybody. Any other questions? Yeah, we've got a couple over here. Dan, uh, you know, none of us have ever seen a Civil War battle, but based on what you know, well, I would say overall, Glory is by far the best Civil War movie, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it might be a little sacrilegious to say that in Gettysburg, <laughs> but I agree. Uh, I agree. Glory with is hands saying. down the yes. best Civil War movie, um, just in just terms of being a great film and being an amazing, powerful story. Uh, the opening scenes are not entirely accurate for what took place at Antietam um, in terms of uh, the actual troop positions, things like that. It showed Robert Gould Shaw's wound being a little bit worse than it actually was. Um, so it, it, they, they took some, some dramatic licenses with it there. As far as it being really accurate for Civil War combat, uh, I, I don't know. Um, you know I, I guess I've never really thought of it in, in that exact term, but um, and it, it serves as a powerful opening for the movie, and it's mm -hmm. and it's certainly a powerful connection that you have Robert Gould Shaw, this officer who served at Antietam, who ended up leading the 54th Massachusetts and dying with the regiment less than a year later. Right. I've often thought about that scene as in far as that scene at Antietam, and the beginning scene of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. It's yeah. like that's it's not a absolutely historically accurate but it's that thing that just grabs your attention and be like wow this is going to be intense and yeah. this is a really intense moment yeah. yeah we had another question over here yes sir so I don't, I don't know much about Antietam so I wanted to find out if, is this a myth of the captured battlefields <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question uh, that was one of the things we were talking about maybe yeah. going over tonight yeah. um, so the, the question was the captured battle plans um, and I'm really glad you asked this uh, yeah, because I forgot. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's, I didn't. No, I did. Go ahead, please. So, uh, basically, uh, Special Orders 191 uh, is what you're referring to. On September 9th, when Lee and the Confederates were in Frederick, Maryland, there was a Union garrison at Harper's Ferry and at Martinsburg in Virginia. And Lee could not operate with Union forces at the opening to the Shenandoah Valley while he was in Maryland. So he issued Special Orders 191 to divide up his army and try to get rid of this Union garrison. It was marching orders for the Confederate Army on September 9th. On September 13th, four days later, it makes its way into Union hands. And 
Essentially, what it tells the Union Army is that the Confederate Army is divided. And that's about it. Because uh, the, the orders were inaccurate by that point. Some of the troops had changed their marching routes. Um, they say nothing of Confederate strength. Uh, McClellan had been told that there were over 120,000 Confederates. There were not that many. Uh, and also, the orders basically said that this operation to capture Harper's Ferry, get rid of the garrison there, was supposed to have been wrapped up by the 12th. So they're four days old. They're out of date. The operation should have been wrapped up. And somehow this is described as the intelligence coup, the intelligence find of the war. Um, and, and the phrase I hear a lot is the battle plans. It actually doesn't really have anything to do with Antietam. Uh, if you're talking about South Mountain, which was fought on the 14th, the battle right before Antietam, it leads to that fight. But as far as Antietam itself, uh, the battle plans didn't really have any relevance whatsoever for that. Um, the other thing to note is that it's not the first time, it's not the last time that an order falls its way into enemy hands during the Civil War. Uh, there were numerous times in August 62 that that happened. So um, it's a good question. Um, I was wondering, is it the perception that McClellan had the plans and therefore, geez, he couldn't even do this That's So that's the, the, the tale that is spun, that McClellan had, you know, Basically, the Civil War equivalent of Navy SEAL Team 6 and right. the Confederate battle plans, got, and he yeah. still can't do it. They got the ships going to Pearl Harbor and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Like, but really, it had nothing to do with the battle itself, um, the Antietam itself. And, but you, you read some historians, and they say that, you know, and basically any other general could have used this to destroy the enemy. And Well, no, it's, that's not the case at all. Um, there's a lot of debate over when he actually gets the orders. Uh, some people allege that he got them on the morning of the 13th and then waited almost a full day. Well, he, he himself said he got them in the evening, and the very next morning he's launching an attack at South Mountain. So um, it's a much shorter timeline between when they received the orders, the news that the Confederates were divided, and the start of an operation against them. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's not quite the intelligence fine it was made out to be. So. Yeah, I'm glad that question came out because yeah. that is a very important question. Yeah. Any other questions before we wrap this part up? All right, thank you, Dan, for coming out. Thank Let's you, give John. it up for Dan and Knight. <laughs> <laughs>